What is up, podcast listeners? It is episode 205 with the lovely Krista Scott Dixon. She has been on my show at least two or three times. So if you want to listen to some giant knowledge bombs about the psychology of eating and just life in general, I highly, highly, highly recommend you go back and search for Krista's interviews with me, especially the one on binge eating where we role play as I become her imaginary client dealing with my own binge eating issues and she just dissects every little bit. I highly recommend that episode. This episode is a little catch-up episode of what she's been doing. We talk about a little bit of intermittent fasting, being resilient, and more. And as always, this episode is jam-packed with a lot of great information. So without further ado, here's Chris Scott Dixon. Dang. <laughs> Damn technology. Oh, it's the worst. It's been randomly doing it lately, which is kind of pissing me off. But uh, anyway, here I am. There you go. <laughs> you're you're on a Mac, right? Yeah. Are, do you use like uh, the earbuds or anything like that? Yeah, I do. I have my headphones in. It, there's there's no reason why this should have been like this. Like really, like I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't. I didn't. You know, have a Zoom call this morning. Like there was just absolutely no reason other than like random bullshit. Because <laughs> <laughs> like. I can't remember who I was interviewing and like my audio didn't work at all, but I could hear them. And apparently Skype sometimes just chooses what input it's going to use. So you always have to like go into your Skype preferences and make sure it's like recording from your earbuds, microphone, whatever it is. Well, yeah, and also um, it was it was across the board. Like I couldn't get sound out of anything. Like all of a sudden, every every app that I had, like Spotify, wasn't working, and so I was like, "That's it. We're rebooting." <laughs> the other thing too that I've been looking at is like because I do a lot of like video editing, mm. and like one day I, I always check like my um, how much storage I have left and. You know, like, I was, like, looking at my Mac, and I'm like, oh, cool, I have, like, 61 gigs, I'm good to go. And then I'm, like, editing a video and, like, listening to music, and then, like, everything kind of, like, just stops, and it says, you don't have any more, like, flash memory. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> I have 61 gigs, and then I go check, and it's, like, 7 gigs left. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and I went down this, like, rabbit hole of searching online on these forums on Apple of, like, what the hell's going on? Because when I checked... Like, my entire computer system was taking up, like, close to 200 gigs of memory. And I'm like, that does not make sense. And I found, like, some small stuff where, you know, say all your messages that come through onto your laptop, onto your, like, iMessage app, it saves everything on there. And it also, like, saves it into your iCloud, saves it into this thing. And I had, like, 41 gigs worth of, like saved shit that I did not need and it's so weird it's kind of hard to explain too I just like looked at the instructions of like where to delete shit and it's helped but I've noticed that like if I'm editing a podcast episode if I'm editing a video my like free 60 gigs of space goes down to like 25 because I think it like automatically saves continuously just in case Wow. But then if, like, I shut them down, it's like, oh, 61 gigs again. I'm like, what the hell is going on? Huh. Yeah. 
fucking technology. <laughs> Bullshit. We should just go back to rocks and sticks, yo. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, yeah, so for this podcast, I've done this with, like, two other people. I just... I just let it run. Like I've been recording this whole this whole thing, and uh, I've done this with Lee Peel and Megan Calloway, and a lot of people kind of liked it. And I feel like with certain individuals, they would do well in this kind of situation. And I think you'd be like perfect for it. Yeah, cool. <laughs> you know, like fucking intro, fuck whatever crap, <laughs> but uh, let 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 it run. You know what I mean? Screw it all, totally. Yeah. with you. Let's do this. <laughs> But uh, to, like, start stuff off, it's kind of like, it's been a while since I've had any on my show, and uh, I'm kind of curious, what's new, what's going on, what what are you doing? (laughs) What am I doing? Well, I'm recovering from uh, my speaking tour uh, of Asia in November, December. Uh, That's a big one, settling into uh, the routine here in in the rainy northwest um, although, you know, I really can't complain because apparently where I came from, Toronto is getting hammered by yes. snow and ice right now. So <laughs> I don't feel bad about that. But uh, no, I'm, I'm working on um, a couple of new projects. Um, one of them is uh, working with my colleagues at PN to uh, write a book about metabolism. Which is a pretty ambitious topic, as as if you know anything about metabolism, you know it's a rabbit hole of crazy in terms of like you know the amount of uh, material that's there and the amount of complexity, um, and then also looking at uh, revising our intermittent fasting book because we wrote that book about ten years ago, and obviously. Lots changes in science in, in 10 years, and a lot has changed in our perspective, too. So um, that's one piece I'm looking at, and, and it's kind of funny to dig into it and go, oh, wow, this is how we thought about things 10 years ago, and here's how we thought about, here's how we think about them now. And just to see the change in perspective that, you know, working with tens of thousands more clients can give you or, or hearing what people's experience, like, it's just it's such a massive um, shift and, and not even so much a change, but a deepening of understanding and perspective. So that's pretty cool to see. That's that's taking a lot of my attention right now. Sweet. You can do like one of those 10-year challenges for uh, the intermittent fasting book. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Jeez. Totally. Where were we at 10 years ago? Probably kind of crazy. <laughs> but it's awesome that you brought that up because like one of the questions we got from Facebook was like, someone's like, oh my God, I love all of her work. What is she going to do another book? And I'm like, this is perfect. <laughs> Now you know. Now yeah. you know. I mean, there's some other book projects sort of in the works um, that I've I've been letting languish a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm working on one about counseling and coaching, like using counseling methods in coaching. And then um, I've been had this one on the back burner for ages with Craig Weller about uh, change and resilience and, and how can you... Uh, like break changing or or becoming more resilient down to like specific skills because I think uh, you know there's so much material out there about how to do things differently or how to be different in the self-help field but very little of that is about giving you very practical things that you can actually do in your regular life day to day right so if I say to you oh you should become more resilient you're like okay great I agree but like, where do I start? What does that mean? Like, what do I do? Um, and, and so I always like books that answer those really practical questions of like, here's a thing you can do. And if you do this every day for two weeks, something's going to happen. I like that. Yeah, I think that's where most people need help in because it's like you can Google search any diet you want and have all the guidelines, but it doesn't really happen when like, your environment that you've been exposed to hasn't changed. If you wake up and do the same shit all the time, it's like there, there's just more to it. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, totally. And I think it's really helpful to get uh, like that. You know, I mean, expert advice is really valuable. So someone like Craig Weller, who, you know, was in, you know, some form of, of military work for several years, you know, that's that's a kind of perspective that I can't offer, certainly. Um, you know, but like his his job is basically about or was at the time. How, how does one be and become more resilient in some of the most difficult situations that you can encounter in life, right? And so I, I bring the perspective of someone who was, <laughs> was born or so I feel non-resilient. Um, I come from a family of crybabies with autoimmune disorders and like nervous stomachs. So, <laughs> so you know, while Craig was uh, doing whatever he was doing, being a badass uh, over in various foreign countries, I was, uh, you know, being neurotic and, and worrying a lot and getting allergies and asthma. So, <laughs> so I think it's, it's a good mix because for me, the question has always been, um, as someone who wasn't born naturally resilient, or again, so I feel, um, how do I become more resilient? Is this something I can build even if I didn't kind of get the original factory equipment for it? And I think it's really heartening to know that no matter what you were born with or given, you can usually to some degree change it. Now, I'm not ever going to become a fighter pilot. I'm not ever going to become uh, you know, a trained assassin or whatever you need resilience for. But uh, you know, I can certainly become better than I am. And I think that's really hopeful. So maybe for the people listening that maybe have never heard you speak before and they're like, what is this person talking about resiliency and what does that have to do with anything with nutrition? Maybe could you can like expand a little bit more, like how can someone becoming more resilient, you know, kind of get their shit together when it comes to eating? Yeah, that's such a great question. I'm glad you make those links for your for your listeners. And I'll, I'll even back it up a little bit further because we were just talking about, you know, how you can Google anything and yet it won't necessarily help you. And I've come to the realization after so many years of coaching that change itself is a skill. So there are a set of skills and behaviors and practices that are part of the process of change that kind of occur reliably during the process of change and transition. And that if if learned and practiced and, and given feedback on can be improved so that over time you can become a better changer. Because um, I think, you know, we, we think what change is just something we do or something that happens to us. But some people are better at changing than others or more open to it or they seem to go through it more smoothly than others. And it's pretty obvious to me that it's actually a complete skill set. So um, in terms of, you know, changing your diet, changing your nutrition, there are going to be things that reliably come up in the process of making any change, whether that's I want to exercise more, I want to change my body, I want to change my habits, I want to get healthier, whatever it is, there's stuff that's going to come up. And you can manage it well or you can manage it poorly. And managing it well or poorly is a result of having particular skills as well as a particular outlook on you know what change is and, and how it works. But really... Um, Aside from that, you can get better at doing the basic things that are part of change. And then, of course, resilience plays into that because in in the process of change, you will have setbacks. Like, it's just inevitable. And I think that people treat change as this very linear process. Like, okay, uh, January 1st, my New Year's resolution kicks in, and every day from here on forward, I'm just going to get steadily better and better and better. And that's not at all how it works. You're going to have setbacks. You're going to backtrack. You're going to fall on your face or encounter obstacles that you never could have imagined, right? Like, let's say January 1st, you're crushing your resolutions and you're crushing them every day until June 
first when you get into a car accident. Now what do you do, right? Now your your system is, has been thrown off and you have to figure out how to adapt. So resilience is almost like a subset of being a good changer, particularly in the face of significant obstacles and significant setbacks. Here's a good question. Like if you were to coach someone to be more resilient, would you ever look at like personality types? Because like I'm thinking about like the individual that is super out there, super high energy and has a really hard time like sitting down. It's like, okay, I should like plow out my week. I should like make sure everything is done on my due date and crap like that. Whereas like maybe someone like me who like plans out every single hour of their day would maybe have a different approach to getting coached to be more resilient, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally does. And I think that's really wise, right? It's it's the same as something like self-care in the sense that the concept can apply to all of us, but the specific manifestation of that might look different. And I think, you know, there's lots of different dimensions of resilience too like we all know that person with an iron constitution like we call my dad the human cockroach because like he has survived he should have been dead by age four and so he has survived like so many things in his life that should have killed him including things like taking a piece of sheet metal to the face um getting run over by a car like all kinds of stuff so (laughs) we joke that he's like unkillable and um you know so some people are extremely physically resilient some people are extremely intellectually or mentally resilient in the sense that they're they're really good at um, interpreting or analyzing or reframing situations. Some people are incredibly emotionally resilient, like terrible things happen to them, but somehow they manage to um, bounce back or, or stay cheerful or find meaning or, or something like that. So there's different domains of resilience for sure, and different situations ask us for different things. Um, and of course, we're all going to have a different level of innate capacity there, right? Um, and then, yeah, like all of us are going to respond to different ways of building that resilience. And so, for for example, maybe someone is unresilient because they don't tolerate discomfort well, especially physical discomfort. Maybe they just hate to be physically uncomfortable, and that holds them back from lots of things. Um, like simple little games, like go stand in a cold shower for five seconds, 10 seconds, 30 seconds, see how long you can endure that, you know, harmless, but very unpleasant physical discomfort. That might be a great tool for building up someone's ability to just sit with disconcerting and unpleasant physical sensations. Um, another, uh, tactic of resilience for someone else who is very cognitive, like, likes to do a lot of thinking, uh, might be story rewriting, reframing. Okay. You know, this bad thing happened to you. What are, what are all the stories that you could tell about this? Um, you got into a car accident. You could tell the story that you're horribly unlucky, or you could tell the story that you're horribly lucky because it was only a fender bender, right? Or you didn't die or something like that. So yeah, different tactics and strategies will appeal to different people. And I think they they need different tactics and strategies. There are some people who are naturally resilient who don't even really seem to need or want any of them. You know, like my, my grandmother, uh, who's now 92, raised in the depression, in the 20s in the depression uh, in rural Ontario, horrible, horrible childhood, um, incredibly resilient. And, and she doesn't want fancy tools or techniques. She doesn't want to think about this too much. She just says, what can you do? You got to keep going. And that's all she needs to be resilient. Like she just has this mantra, like, what 
can you do? You got to keep going. That's it. That's her resilience toolbox right there. So with your example of like someone getting into a car accident and like, I, I look at it like two different possible outcomes. One, like someone's going to be like, oh, well, I just got to deal with this. I got to do this, this and this to get out of here. And then the other situation's like, oh my God, my life's over. All my progress is down the shithole. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, like how people, I don't know if it was like how they were raised up, how, like if there's a significant like life event before that car accident that makes them think that way. Cause I've seen like, actually this is a good example. One of the coaches at my gym, she got into a fender bender and like her whole back seized up and like, she could have easily just been like, holy shit, I'm dying. This is like the worst thing ever. But she literally just like drove back to work where we have a chiropractor. And like right away, she knew what to do. She's like, I'm going to go see her Cairo to make sure I don't fuck this shit up a- anymore. Yeah. And uh, like within a couple weeks, she's almost like back to her normal. Whereas maybe somebody else would like kind of wallow in it. I don't know if people kind of like the feeling of being in pain and having the spotlight, but... I don't know. I'm kind of rambling. Like, any thoughts? Well, you're saying something important here, which is actually that fear avoidance behavior makes injury outcomes worse. So um, regardless of the amount of pain you might feel or the amount of limitation you have, um, you're engaging in fear and avoidance behavior or catastrophizing. So like, oh, my God, this is terrible. The world is ending. Actually predicts your degree of healing or recovery from chronic pain or an injury or an illness. Now, I want to be really careful to to make it clear. I'm not saying, you know, oh, we can choose our attitude and that will make us better. Like, I'm not saying that. Like, there's physiological processes that we really cannot control. And a lot of time we cannot control, you know, what our cells are doing or whatever. But we can control our behaviors around that. And so I, I really like that example because it's it's how I treat my own episodes of back pain. Like this um, spring, I sprained my back so bad, I literally almost couldn't walk. Um, I, I don't think I've done anything that bad <laughs> in a long time. But I knew that I had, I could not go there to the crazy place of like, oh gosh, I've completely screwed myself up. I knew that I had to keep moving because if I didn't, I was in big trouble. Because we know from the research that when you have back pain or chronic pain, the more you avoid and restrict and are afraid of it, the worse it gets and the more restricted and limited you continue to get. So it's not that you know my attitude improved the inflammatory chemicals circulating in my bloodstream, but um, it did improve my chances of a successful uh, recovery and outcome. So that is definitely the case. And we, we actually had a, a legendary example in precision nutrition of a guy in our coaching program who fell off the roof and he broke like dozens of bones. And so you'd think, oh yeah, you know what? He should just quit coaching. There's no point. And his attitude was, well, I need coaching now more than ever. <laughs> and so I'm going to stay in this coaching program and use my coach and, and get feedback and, and do what I can do, which really isn't much, mostly just lie there in a body cast for a while. Um, but, you know, I'm going to use the support that I've got. And I, I've always found that a really profound example of a, a difference in, in mindset and the outcome it gets you. No, and I think another good example, too, I can't remember if I told you or somebody else on my show, but, like, I had this one client where she does the Ride to Conquer Cancer every year, and this happened probably three, I think it was three years ago, 
and um, I get like a text message from her, and she's like, "Hey, I'm not gonna make it Monday to the gym. I broke my back." And I'm like, "What?" And then like all these t- <laughs> photos come in of her X-rays, and I'm like, "Holy shit!" So apparently. She's riding along, and we had a big windstorm here in BC that year, and a tree fell on her, severed her spine in half, broke her scapula, and was like rushed to the Seattle emergency room, got the surgery. Um, and I was like, holy crap, like this person broke, like, I don't even know if she's gonna be able to walk. Like, this is fucking crazy. Yeah. And, and then she, like, during that week when she was in the hospital, she was like, texting me like half drugged up most of it didn't make sense but she's like don't worry i'll be back in the gym before you know it i'm like (laughs) are you serious so that happened in like august and december 15th was her first session back and i'm like that was like four months but her mindset was like i just have to deal with it so the moment she was able to get out of the hospital she went to physio chiro massage and everything else that she had to do week in week out and then boom back at the gym and like to this day like you would not know that she broke her back and she's fused from like like i think it's like t6 to whatever like at least four segments like it's ridiculous she's basically like wolverine in her spine (laughs) she's like she's just like a one metal rod basically essentially but I'm so glad to use this example because I think that people listening might get the impression of resilience just means you power through, right? Like I, I see this all the time uh, when I used to train judo, like everyone would be standing on the side of the mat, taping themselves up, right? Ah, oh, yeah, I got a broken hand. No, no, no problem. I'll just tape up and get in there kind of thing. It's like, okay, no, no, this does not mean overriding some legitimate requirement to take care of yourself. It's the opposite. What you do to be resilient is you take extra care of yourself. You don't ignore what you need to get done. You don't ignore that support that you require. Um, you don't just, you know, kind of tape it up and keep fighting and then have to go for shoulder surgery six months, you know, down the road. Um, you, you genuinely nurture and nourish and, and care for yourself and, and recover because that is the essence of resilience. It's not just like, like oh, I'm going to put my head down and power through no matter what, even if that's a completely stupid choice. So I really like that you use this example because, you know, the, the magic formula here was this client getting the support and the help that she needed to make it back in the gym. hundred percent. And now that we're down this rabbit hole, another thing I kind of want to touch on is like motivation during times where people's lives get really, really dark. Cause like, I find that, you know, you can plan that, yeah, you know, 2019 is going to be your year of fitness and health and you know a significant life thing happens and you kind of fall down into this little black pit of a hole and you can't get out you're in this rut and nothing really you just don't even feel the motivation to do anything so i'm kind of curious if you've ever dealt with like a client that went through a life series like that and what can people do to one, if they're a coach to help their clients get out of that, or if someone's listening who's experiencing that right now, or is just, you know, just, just doesn't feel it, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's funny that you, that you say a client, because I was listening to this thinking, like, that actually was my life in much of 2017, <laughs> after a, a series of massive and traumatic life changes, and, uh, and, and really being in what I would say was the darkest pit of, you know, emotional health in my life, and so, um, but, you know, I've seen it in clients, too, and I think, 
you know, really, like if you live long enough, you're going to go through it. Like it's just a matter of time before you roll snake eyes in the great gambling table of life. Uh, and, it, and it will happen to you. Uh, and hopefully not more than once, but you never know. Right. So, um, I think for me, um, you know, and for clients, it's so powerful to just have someone say, this is normal. Like it is normal to feel sad when someone dies. It is normal to feel lost when you make a big transition. It is normal um, to not know what to do when you're in a novel um, context where like, yeah, of course you don't know what to do. Like when I, when I moved to Vancouver, I was literally getting lost. <laughs> well, of course, when you're in a new city, that's what happens. You get lost. Right. Um, and so to, to normalize that for clients and say, what you're experiencing makes sense. And so all of the physical symptoms, if your appetite is, is weird or your sleep is weird, your energy, even strange physical sensations, you know, all of that is extremely normal. And you're going to be like, not, not to sort of reassure them like, oh, it's going to be fine, but to say, you know what? No, things are functioning normally. It's scary. It's uncomfortable. It's not what we'd all like to feel, but it's normal. And so I think for me, that's, that's, Item number one is just because I think, you know, for a lot of people, it's the fear of what's ha- like it's, it's what's around the experience that is so difficult. Right. Am I OK? Am I broken? What is happening to me? What does it mean? Am I going to be screwed up forever? Like it's all the thoughts and the feelings around the experience. Like if you just woke up one day and you were sad, well, that's I mean, that's OK. Right. We can get through that. But it's like when you start wondering, oh, my God, am I going to be sad forever? Oh, what does this mean? Am I a terrible person? That arguably, I think, causes more distress than just the immediate experience. So that's that's piece number one. Um, and piece number two is letting them know that it's actually okay to suffer. Again, not desirable, not ideal, but to say it's we don't have to fix this. We don't have to change it. We don't have to fix it. We don't have to rush away from it. Let's just be in it right now. I think it's kind of a relief for a lot of people, again, even though what they're feeling is really sucky, um, to because I think it's that a lot of times we, we are panicked because we're trying to change it. We're trying to fix it. Some things can't get fixed, right? If someone you love dies, you can't fix that. So, um, you know, we go through the normal process of, of grief and we allow it to be there. And so to say to clients, allow yourself to struggle, I think is, is very powerful. And that was advice I got a long time ago when I always thought it was super useful. And then we look for what's your new normal, right? What's your baseline right now? Recognizing that the baseline can change. So maybe today for you, the victory is get out of bed, put on pants, have a cup of coffee, stare out the window. Awesome. Good for you. Um, you know, tomorrow it might be something else. So to help clients realize, you know, don't hold yourself to the standard that you held yourself to at another time in your life or that you could meet at another time in your life. Recognize that the baseline changes. There's a dynamic ebb and flow to it. Um, and so don't get stuck on any single baseline. It's interesting because uh, there's a poster up in my gym and it's like, uh, it says, what seems impossible today will one day become your warm-up. And I'm looking at that, and I'm like, how about 
what seemed like your warm-up may someday become impossible because <laughs> that's how it tends to work in life sometimes. So for me, those are sort of the top strategies um, and, and really being flexible and dynamic with clients and saying, okay, how are you showing up today? What feels possible for you today? And what's, how much will things cost you, right? So maybe you can make it to the gym for a workout, but a full beast mode workout will cost you too much. You'll you'll be knocked out for, for days. So what about a half-ass workout? What about a quarter-ass workout? I always give my clients the option of the quarter-ass workout. <laughs> you can always half-ass, quarter-ass, fractionally-ass anything. Um, you know, so maybe you just go to the gym, you, you waddle on the treadmill for 10 minutes, and you high-five yourself and call it a day. So to, to put all the options on the table and to say, think about the, the cost of everything, recognize that, you know, in this state, stuff's going to cost energy so allocate your energy budget accordingly always trying to leave some stuff in the tank and really seeking out those truly replenishing activities um you know what if anything fills the tank even if it's just go finding a a fluffy dog at the dog park you know and petting it that counts and that's important to do as well yeah and i think the important thing too is like a lot of times when people fall into these dark holes they automatically think like, oh shit, I need to get out of this. And that's like the only thing they're thinking about. But sometimes it just makes things worse. Like just knowing that it's okay, like you're you're allowed to have these feelings makes a huge difference. Yeah, totally. And, and I mean, if, if you're listening and you're someone who has done a martial art, <clears throat> especially something like jujitsu, you know that when you start off, there's a lot of flailing and tensing and panicking. And you're so exhausted by the end of a session because you were so tensed and, and, and flailing and panicked. And so like a white belt will work with an advanced belt and be like, oh my gosh, like that was so exhausting. I mean, the advanced belt probably didn't even do anything besides sit on them in various positions, right? But the white belt has like so depleted themselves by burning through their energy with, again, the panic and the flailing and, the, and freaking out. That's in a way what makes it so much worse. And the other thing, too, is, like, what I tell clients, especially when they're going through a rough time, like, the only thing in my life that makes sense if I'm having a hard time is just going to the gym. And like you said, it could be a half-assed workout. But, like, during that time when you're, you know, squatting or lunging or whatever the hell you want to do, you, you kind of get a break from it. Like, I, I don't know, like, for me, it kind of gives me more clarity and I feel more accomplished even if I, like, go hop on a foam roller and just kind of roll around on the floor and then leave and go home. But, I don't know, it's, it's always been there for me. Yeah, totally. And I think any physical activity that takes your full attention is, is excellent. Uh, I mean, really, any activity in general that prevents you from... Um, wallowing too much is, is really helpful. And I know um, in 2006, that was a really rough year for me too. And that's when I started jujitsu. And, and I'm just doing an hour a week, but because it was such a new skill set and, um, you know, I had to be, be totally present all the time because someone's trying to choke me and I don't know what's going on. Um, that was like the one hour of the week when my life didn't suck because I was so in the moment. So any skill or any activity that takes your attention out of your own brain and puts it into what's unfolding in present moment reality is an excellent um, uh, option. So however that looks to you, uh, you know, find those activities for sure because it'll just, if nothing else, it's just a break. It's just a, a little mini vacation from whatever pain you're experiencing. 
So let's switch gears a little bit because I'm kind of curious about intermittent fasting because like I think I probably started at least six or seven years ago and I haven't really looked into it if there's anything new. So maybe for the audience, like, can you like share a couple things that you found that works better or it's a little bit different or anything like that? Yeah, I think one of the things that people might be surprised to know is that a lot of the research on intermittent fasting is actually not using fasting. So fasting is you don't eat. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> it's kind of an all or nothing thing. So fasting is you don't eat and, and there's a period of time. So, okay, so let, you know, let's say you have a meal, it goes into your digestion, the nutrients get absorbed, they go into circulation. And so that takes a period of several hours and somewhere around, depending on the person, the eight to 12 hour mark, you have cleared all of the nutrients from your last meal from circulation. So you're no longer depending on like that external source for energy. And now you have to use some form of stored energy in your own body. And so that is when fasting, the fasting state begins to occur. So before that is called the post-absorptive state. Um, and then we have the fasting state. And of course, if fasting progresses for, you know, um, several days or whatever, then we have starvation, right? So fasting is like this window between post-absorption and starvation. And the goal of any fasting protocol is to kind of just hit that sweet spot because there are physiological changes that occur when we are fasted before we hit starvation that seem to have a number of benefits for human health. Now, like I said, the research actually shows that we don't even need to be fasted completely to see those benefits. So I think that's the first take home for me that it's really not an all or nothing thing. Uh, you can get the benefits such as they are of intermittent fasting without ever actually fasting. Um, and so there's a new, uh, not really new, but like in the literature, new um, acronym, which is IER. So rather than IF, it's IER, which is intermittent energy restriction. And the simplest way to say that is that some days you eat normally, Others, other days you eat a lot less than normal. That's all that is. And so you're just varying your energy intake over a period of time. Um, and so we do know that intermittent fasting or standard caloric restriction, also known as dieting, uh, and intermittent energy restriction all benefit us in some way if they're done correctly. So if we're someone that needs to lose weight or body fat, if we do that, we get better, we get healthier. Um, there seems to be some metabolic advantages from periodically eating less or lowering our energy intake. There's pretty clear evidence that having too high an energy intake for too long, aka eating too much, <laughs> um, you know, causes health problems or increases our risk for health problems. A good example of that uh, is cancer. Uh, there's a pretty clear link between excess body fat, excess energy intake, and the risk of particular cancers, such as breast cancer or colon cancer. So somehow restricting our energy intake periodically seems to help us metabolically. That's kind of the main take home. But the other main take home is that can look lots of different ways. So you don't have to follow any kind of strict protocol to see the benefits of occasionally restricting your energy intake. So that's kind of like the big umbrella picture. And I, I'm guessing you probably have more, you know, specific questions. 
Yeah, because like I was just gonna ask, like, so what's the window? What's the fasting window that people should be following? What's the magic? Tell me the magic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Give me the answer. And I mean, that's the that's the thing, right? There is no answer. There is no single protocol that I can point to and say, this is going to fix you. This is going to solve all your problems. This is the thing that works for everyone. Um, you know, we, we all differ physiologically, you know, age, activity level, fitness level, how much body fat we have, how much lean mass we have, you know, biological sex, what medications we're on, what our existing um, health profile is. Like there's tons and tons and tons of differences among people which means that we really cannot say, oh, this one protocol is the best for everyone. I think it was not accidental that the early adopters of intermittent fasting were young males. Now, first of all, they're all trying to get jacked and lean. That's a big part of it. But, you know, there are there are physiological adaptations um, that can happen in younger males that tend not to be available to folks like me, like middle-aged women, <laughs> or people who are older or maybe like less fit or whatever. So the people that seemed to thrive, at least temporarily, on intermittent fasting tended to be more kind of ectomorphic, naturally leaner, younger guys, because periodically eating less is like their natural habitat anyway, right? They, they already do that. Those are the guys that forget to eat, right? <laughs> Which I completely do not understand. <laughs> but, you know, those are, those are the kind of people that seem to naturally gravitate um, towards it. Um, and so as we broadened our focus, we, we learned, no, there's really no practice that works for everyone. One of the big advantages of it, I would say, is actually psychological. So with a lot of our clients, they're just afraid of being hungry. And so when they feel hungry, they panic and feel like they have to eat. There's a sort of theme running through this conversation, right? Don't panic. Yeah. <laughs> Panicking and flailing and resisting is almost never a good idea. So, you know, what they would what they would do, so, so here you are, you're someone who's trying to lose weight. We know that to lose weight or body fat usually, you have to create an energy deficit. So you have to take in less energy than you put out. And this is true. It doesn't matter if you're eating Twinkies, if you're eating 100% protein, if you're eating olive oil, like it doesn't matter what you're eating. You have to create an energy deficit to lose weight or fat. And we know that when people create an energy deficit, they get hungry. <laughs> they get more interested in food. Um, they often find it harder to feel full when they do eat. And so clients who are trying to lose fat and weight are kind of stymied by this problem of like, okay, I'm eating less, but now I'm hungry. And I don't really know how to deal with that. It's kind of freaking me out. So one of the benefits of, of either fasting or just having days where you eat significantly less and allow yourself to get hungry is you start to learn that hunger is not an emergency. And you learn that it can be managed. You learn that it comes and goes. It has sort of cycles to it. And so you learn not to panic or freak out or feel like you have to fix it when you do get hungry. And that can be incredibly freeing because now you can just relax. You're not sitting in a meeting going, oh my God, this meeting is going through lunchtime. I'm losing my shit. I have to go and eat something or I have to eat this cookie tray that's in front of me because I'm, my, you know, my muscles are dissolving. You realize it's not a big deal to be a little bit hungry for a while. Um, and that's huge. Like, that's so liberating for a lot of people. And so um, in one of the chapters of the Intermittent Fasting book, we talk about doing the one-day fast. So in our uh, Precision Nutrition Coaching Program, there's a one-day fast experiment. 
it doesn't even have to be a day. It's just, you know, kind of go without eating longer than you normally would and, and push the envelope of that a little bit just to see what it's like and know that you'll be okay. You won't die. You might not even be really that hungry. You know, your, your normal mealtime may come and go and you might be hungry around that time, but afterwards you're like, nah. That, even if you just do that, it cracks your world open because you're like, wow, I don't have to freak out all the time about being hungry. So that, in my mind, is actually one of the biggest advantages, and it has nothing to do with your metabolism. So for, like, the average person, or, like, let's structure this question this way, how often do you kind of prescribe intermittent fasting for clients? Because I find, like, for... You know, for myself, because I kind of live more of a structured life, it kind of just works really well. Because, like, for me in the morning is, like, go time to get shit done. And I have my first meal right at 12. So I'm like, oh, perfect. If I wake up at this time, I can just hammer stuff out while drinking coffee and then crush my first meal. Whereas maybe someone who's, like, days just all over the place might not be able to make sure that they're going to eat at a certain time every single day. Yeah, totally. And, um, and I'm, I'm the flip side of that. Like if I don't have breakfast, it gets ugly. (laughs) I can, I can skip dinner, but like if I, if I don't have breakfast, I don't know. I'm just a hateful human being. So, um, yeah, I mean, so the book that we have focuses a lot on self-experimentation and learning, learning your patterns, right? Um, when do you naturally find yourself eating less or when are you more comfortable with eating less? Now I, I would actually never prescribe um, a repeated intermittent fasting protocol for a client, unless I felt like there was a really good reason for it. Because there can be significant trade-offs, um, and many of them are behavioral and psychological. Um, so it, I, would, I would prescribe it if I had a client who needed a metabolic fix really fast. Like someone who came to me and was like, okay, listen, my doctor just read me the riot act. I am in deep shit here. My, you know, my cholesterol numbers are terrible. My blood glucose insulin management is a dumpster fire. Like I need to start dealing with this immediately. So for the, so for that client, I, and, and if someone could, I, you know, if I knew they could psychologically tolerate it, I'd say, listen, okay, tell you what, let's take the next couple months get some shit done, and then we'll transition you to a more sustainable way of eating. So for a client like that, I might do something like alternate day fasting. And many of the alternate day fasting studies are not fast. They're not complete fast. It's it's something like, you know, day one, eat normally. Day two, eat something like 20% of your regular energy intake. Day three, eat normally. Day four, 20%. So it doesn't even have to be a complete fast to see the benefits. And the game I like to play is, how can I keep you as well fed as possible while getting what I want. So what's the tipping point for me where we can feed you as much as possible, but still get you that trade-off, that benefit of reduced energy intake. So if I don't have to go all the way to zero, why would I, right? If I can get it at 10% energy intake, at 20% energy intake, even 50% energy intake, maybe there's a win there too. So, but there would be almost no client where I'd say, hey, you know what, let's do intermittent fasting the way that it's, um, you know, specified in a lot of websites and that kind of stuff, unless you naturally gravitate towards it and feel terrific on it. I mean, that's the thing, right? Like people do a lot of different protocols and they're like, I feel like shit, but I'm going to keep going. Or maybe I need to fast harder. Maybe I I need to add another fast day. It's like, okay, no, no, you're missing the intermittent part. Like that's what makes the magic, right? It's not 
constantly fasting. That's what we call starvation or malnutrition, right? So I, I think, um, you know, part of the work with clients is finding a protocol, if appropriate, that balances all of the factors. Who are they physiologically, psychologically, behaviorally? What does their daily routine look like? What are their needs? Um, can we do this in a way that makes it as casual as possible? Like, uh, you know what, if you wake up and it's a busy morning and you skip breakfast and it doesn't feel like a big deal, that's cool. But if you get up in the morning and you, and you skip breakfast and you're frazzled and then that night you hit the cookie cupboard, then that's not a workable strategy, right? So we want to look at all the indicators, physiological, psychological, behavioral, all that kind of stuff, and, and really make a judgment call about, is this actually a good idea? And if we do try it, is it actually working? That was very well said, and it's a good spot to end that, because the next thing I want to ask you is, what's getting you excited about fitness and health right now? What is getting me excited about fitness? Jeez, would I use the term excitement? Um, (laughs) uh, You know, to be honest, um, for me, um, so last year was extremely kind of chaotic, and I was doing tons of traveling too, so it was really hard to adhere to any kind of, um, you know, systematic schedule or anything consistent. Like, everything was sort of, like, good enough, right? Okay, I got 20 minutes, I can do a hotel gym, good enough. Everything was good enough last year. Um, Whereas this year, I have a little bit more time, a little bit more stability, and I'm returning to one of my first passions, which is learning things. I just love learning things. That always brings me joy. And so I have finally, after years off the mats, gone back to jujitsu, you know, MMA stuff. I found a great place here in Vancouver. Um, there's that moment of walking in where you just, like you, you smell, <laughs> you smell the smell of it and, and you feel the mats under your feet and, and you're like, oh yeah, like this is, this is the vibe that I, that I miss. And so getting back to that, um, especially in the, in the context of a women's program, which usually makes things, um, way more fun for me. Cause I'm usually working with people closer to my size. Um, and also, um, I'm taking swimming lessons, uh, this, this year, so I can swim, okay like I won't drown if I fall out of a boat but it's always been a struggle for me and um, part of it is that I sink I seem to sink like I seem to defy physiology (laughs) and sink so it's all that damn bone density or whatever it is I did but um, but I, I wanted to learn it as an adult because as an adult you have the opportunity to make things much less stressful than as kids, right? As an adult, you can see the big picture. You can think more analytically, more broadly. You can step back and take a bit of an objective stance. No one is making you do it, so you you have a level of autonomy. Um, You're mature now, so you can ask questions and don't care if you sound like an idiot. Like, there's just so many advantages to learning things as an adult. So, my goal is to become a, a strong enough swimmer that I can go surfing and feel really confident about it. So, there's kind of an end game for me there. I mean, I think that swimming is a, a fundamental human skill uh, that we all sh- should have unless, you know, we plan to live in the desert for the rest of our life. But um, it, yeah, so so the joy for me is really not so much, you know, becoming my best self at 45 or whatever. You know, I'm kind of over that shit. But I'm just enjoying learning to move my body in, in other familiar ways that I upgrade or in relatively newer ways that that ask me to do some skill development. So that's really what brings me joy because, you know, my physical performance is never going to be what it used to be. Like, I mean, 
for some people at 45, you know, if you've had a sedentary 20s or 30s, yeah, maybe at 45 you're going to put in some kick-ass performances. But for, for those of us that have been active for 20, 25 years, mm, you know, probably your most stellar years of physical performance and recovery are behind you. And I'm completely cool with that. I don't feel tied to... Um, you know, uh, any particular standards. So learning is what brings the joy back for me. Awesome. So if anybody wants to reach out to you or find out more about you and what you do, where can they do that? And anything else you want to plug on my show, you can right now. Woohoo! Yeah. Uh, let's see, what can I plug? Well, of course, there's my book, Why, Why Me Want Eat, uh, Fixing Your Food fucked up That's nice. good. It has lots of swears in it. You can, you can find that on Amazon. Um, uh, you know, because I'm old, the easiest way to find me is on Facebook. So if you Google, uh, you know, Krista Scott Dixon Facebook, you'll probably find me pretty easily. Um, or Instagram, at Stumptuous. Uh, my, my website, Stumptuous, has, has languished a little bit. But, you know, you can you can go there and find some old writings and that kind of stuff. And you can contact me through there. So there's lots of ways. Uh, I tend to be pretty easy to find, uh, you know. So just use the Googles and, and see where they take you. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was amazing. Oh, thanks. Thank you for having me. Okay, so that's going to wrap up episode 205, and hopefully you enjoyed the unedited, unprofessional kind of version of these interviews, because with some of the guests I have on my show, I know pretty well, and we get along really, really well together, and sometimes it's just nice to like just have a conversation with them and talk shop and just let the recording run, so... Hopefully that was, you know, pleasing for the ears and mind. Um, if you have any feedback, feel free to reach out. I always want to improve this show to make it better, grow it, and again, share this podcast. Like, you know, right now, just go and share this episode. That would be freaking amazing. I would be forever in your debt. And keep an eye out for my book. I am close to 300 pages of editing done God, this is taking forever, but it's going to be worth it. So I think by the next solo episode, I am going to send out a pre-sale list where you're going to get a pretty significant discount and get your hands on the book first before anybody else. And uh, yeah, keep tuned in every week as I continually give you the best fitness and health advice out there along with my solo episodes where I ramble about random shit and real shit in the world in my life week in week out until next time you guys